All right, if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, that's where we're going to keep going straight through. Churches love daylight savings time in the fall, but they hate it in the spring. So in the fall back, we expect most people at least to be here early, so it's nice. Hope you guys survive Halloween. I'm one of those guys that um, seems like Christians, pastors, a lot of people kind of freak out about Halloween and they go, what are we going to tell the... People about Halloween, it's like, gee, put on the scariest demon mask you got and eat some candy, it's fun. So, I don't freak out about Halloween, I think it's enjoyable, a great time to meet your neighbors, maybe the only time you meet your neighbors, but this year we had, with my three kids, always something, well, it's not always something different, sometimes it's the same thing year after year, but we had my little princess, who wore one of her wonderful princess outfits, of which she has like a hundred, so she pretty much looked the exact same she looks every day, but this time she felt more princessy. Um, then we had my second son, who uh, Landon, who was uh, four and a half, can't say four, four and a half, and he was Superman without a cape, which uh, maybe you watched The Incredibles and found why you shouldn't have a cape because it's dangerous, but he told me today, someone had told him I had said he was Superman, he's like, no dad, I was Robin. I was like, you had a Superman outfit, man, but hey, we'll go with Robin. And then there's Fisher, who uh, is seven, and he decided to be, once again, a Jedi Knight. So he was a Jedi Knight, of which he's a Jedi Knight nearly every day of the week. So he enjoyed himself, and uh, we, we went around, and we have a small neighborhood, so it's great, because the kids feel like they get a lot, and they don't get much, but they feel like it, so we had a great time. The one thing that was interesting this year, which I'd never experienced in I don't know about how you guys all do Halloween, but I, the one thing about Halloween I hate, I just loathe, is I don't like giving the candy out. I don't care if they eat candy. They can rot their teeth all they want. I just don't like answering the door. Like, I don't like answering the phone. I don't want to do it. They ding, ding. I sit and stare at it. I won't answer it. I don't care if they ring it 50 times. I don't want to give them the candy. I'm always afraid to give them too much and run out. I have, like, this fear of running out of candy. It's really weird. So... I don't like giving it out at all, so then I'm not responsible if it runs out and go, hey, you shouldn't have given so much. So what happened this year, though, my neighbors, didn't happen to us. When our kids come in, so we go out like probably 6.30, as soon as it's dark, go out, get it done. You know, by the time 7.30, you're back, 7.45, lights go out, windows closed, you know, shades up. No one knows we're here. Blow out the candles and the, and the pumpkins. I don't want anyone to knock on our door. So they didn't come to our house, but... Down the road, some high schoolers decided to do what they, I guess they called it reverse trick-or-treating, where they came, they knocked on the door, and they said, trick-or-treat, and people opened the door, and they hucked candy into the house, like full-on king-size candy bars and all kinds of stuff, and it was like, my neighbors were like, never had that experience before, so... I told him, because I grew up in the era where they had, like, razor blades and the apples. I'm like, you didn't eat any of that candy, did you? He's like, oh, no, of course not. But it was interesting. Me, as a high schooler, I didn't do that. I was a bad kid during Halloween. I went around, and I took your pumpkins and off your porch, and I smashed them and laughed as I did it. It was bad. Shouldn't have done it, but it was fun at the same time, especially when the guys, were, the parents were chasing us around the neighborhood. So I was bad, but now I guess the high school kids are into throwing candy in. So that's, that's wonderful. But I love my kids. I learn a lot from my kids. I talk about my kids all the time because, to be honest, they teach me more about my relationship with God than anything. Um, and so I have, like I said, I have a little daughter named Emerson, and she just turned three. She has a princess bike that doesn't look like a bike at all. It looks like a big pile of pink with streamers on it. And I have a son, Landon, and then another older son, Fisher. And I... 
as a father, I'm going to kind of idealize myself as a father because I can. And as a father, I try to provide them a wonderful environment, right? I try to give them everything that I think they need uh, to, to thrive and survive in this world. And so I, along with help from their mom, brought them into this world to begin with. So that's, you know, a good thing. And then I changed their diapers for many years, okay, changed their diapers, wiped their bottoms. And I, I think this is true. It might, you can ask my bride, but I think I've probably changed more diapers than she did because poop just doesn't bother me. I'm all about poop. Puke, poop, snot, whatever. just doesn't bother me at all. So pink poopy diaper, sure, I'll do it. No problem. So I pooped. I pooped. I cleaned a lot of poopy diapers. And so I remind my sons of that a lot. Like there was a day when I was wiping your rear. And if I didn't wipe your bottom, you would have been in pain and suffering. So you think about that just in your relationship with God. Like if he doesn't wipe your bottom, you know, think about that for a second. So if you think about your child, it's anyway. So I did that. I give them what they need. I give them food. You know, sometimes they don't like it, but I give them food, give them shelter. I give them affection. I'm cuddly with my kids. I wrestle with my boys. I kiss my daughter all the time. I give them hopefully everything, even entertainment, right? I'm the human punching bag sometimes, or I'm the daddy, you know, drinking tea with the little girl. I, I, I hopefully give them. So I give them all this environment. If these kids were objective in, in how they surveyed their environment, if they were to step back for a second, which they would never do at ages 3, 5, and 7, but if they were to step back for a moment and survey the environment that's been built for them, I would assume that they would be only filled with gratitude and thanksgiving and just so much thank you, Dad, for everything you've done. And, but that isn't the case, as you probably have experienced if you have children. My kids complain. Now, they don't complain a lot. I'm going to make it sound like, I love you, Fisher. I'm going to make it like they complain a lot. But they complain just like anyone complains. And I learn a lot from the complaints of my children. So in preparing for this, because we're looking at a passage today, which at the core of it is about Moses complaining to God. It's Moses complaining to his dad. And my kids complain to me. And so I was analyzing, because I'm analytical and weird like that, like, okay, how does a complaint work? I subbed for uh, Kandra. Kandra, so I, you know, he's teaching in high school, and I subbed for Kandra this week, and I quickly was reminded how many, you know, complaints never go away. Seniors, juniors in high school, complaints. Especially when I go in there, I'm like, shut up, sit down. They're like, no, we don't like you. When's Miss Nason coming back? Like, yeah, be quiet. So kids complain all the time, and then there's a progression of the complaint. It starts off like this. I think at first it's it's very subtle, and it's almost uh, it's more like a grunt. Sometimes there's a grimace to it. Um, but there's a, a, a dislike of something. It's not really verbalized as a complaint. It's, it's more like a whine, uh, a, a terrible whine. And kids, my kids do it. Other kids do it differently. You know, take a toy and throw it down or, you know, or stomp up the, up the stairs. My little sister used to do that when she got in trouble. She'd be sent to rooms like, I don't want to go. You know, every step was a word. And, and there's, there's whines that happen and complaints, and they're not really full-on grievances yet. But slowly, if they get older... They're able to articulate the complaint, and I think there's a progression. Here's how it starts. It starts off as, it's not fair. It's not fair. That's a very common phrase that I hear kids say. It's not fair. And the strange thing is, they don't know what it means. Because I've asked them, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by fair? This is not fair. It's like, it's something you understand, like gravity. It's like, not fair. It's like, what do you mean? And I think they probably heard it from another kid 
who used it, and they didn't know what it meant. And it doesn't seem like the parents know what they mean either, because their typical response to it's not fair is, life's not fair. And I think what that means is translated, I don't know what you mean, kid, and I don't know what that, but I'm going to tell you this so you'll shut up and stop talking about it, because life's not fair, okay? That's how life is. Well, what does that mean? And I thought, what does it mean? It doesn't necessarily mean, but they might mean equal, like, that kid got more ice cream than I did, I typically hear it. They're like, it's not fair. And it's like microscopic difference, right? You can have one little speck of, you know, something higher there. Look, it's not fair. He got more than me. But I never hear, strangely, the kid who got clearly more complaining about fairness, right? There's, that's that. So it's, maybe it's not equality. I think at the core of it is that the child doesn't get what they want. I want something and you didn't give it to me, or you gave me something that I didn't want. Whatever it is, it's just I like or dislike this, and it's not fair because I wanted it this way. And so if they do obey you, if they decide to just kind of, you know, suck it up, they typically, much like maybe the Pharisees did, they would agree with their lips that, okay, you're right, but in their hearts they're very much still in disagreement. And then it goes to the next stage, which is, and maybe your child is perfect, and my children are perfect, love you, Fisher. But maybe this is what happens. You maybe have heard this phrase where they say, well, I want out of this family. I want out of this family. And you start breaking down what that really means. And I think that at the core of it is, and you see it sometimes kind of manifested, they, maybe they pack their bags, maybe they don't. I think one of our sons at one time like, stand, stood out on the sidewalk across from the street one time as a, like a threat, in the rain, I think, at the same time, like, I'm going. I'm leaving. It's like, enjoy. So they left, or, or maybe they threaten, they pack their bags. But what they say at the core of it is, I don't like the way this family is run or governed, and I bet I can find another family that will give me what I want. That's what I don't like the house rules. I don't like, still back to I don't like, I don't like your rules. And so I think... Again, at the core of it, what they do is decide, well, I think you don't know what you're doing. And so I'm going to find a different place with better rules, rules that agree with me more. And so they do. Typically they don't, but they talk about it. The third level where they get to is I can't wait till I'm a dad. I can't wait till I'm a dad. It's not fair. I want out of this family. When I'm a dad, things are going to be different. Things are going to go exactly as I see they should go. And they recognize, strangely, that there is an authority in the home. There are rules in the home. But they don't like the rules. They don't like the authority. In fact, they believe that the authority is in some way incapable or not willing to do what they want. And so they think they can make a better dad. They make a better authority. And this is, in my opinion, full-on rebellion, where they basically deny that the dad is actually good. They deny that the dad is really loving and out for the best. And they reinterpret what they would define a good dad would do. And you start thinking about our own relationship and how that's reflective of our relationship with God. Our Father as the Bible describes him. And I think sometimes in our own interactions with God, and I'm, I speak from my own heart because this beats the snot out of me as I study this. But from my own heart, I'm very much a child like that with my father. 
very much complaining uh, when something doesn't happen that I think should have happened, for better or worse. Someone dies. I lose my job. Or I don't get that promotion I wanted. Or something happens in my marriage. And I mean, anything, any number of things. And we cry out, this is not fair. This is not fair. I want out of this family. And, man, if I was dad, it wouldn't happen this way. And I think at the core of it, the question really is, do, does the child really believe that the father is good? Does a child really believe that the father is good? Despite what's happened, does he really believe, do I really believe that the father is good? Do I or does the child really believe that the father loves them? Really, despite what they see. You know, when, when my son's being spanked, I think that's the last thing going through his mind. Man, Dad, you love me. You know, I don't think he's thinking that. But I've had those conversations with my son after the fact. Do you understand why I'm doing this? Yeah, because you're mean. And I would make a better dad. I'm not going to spank my son. Yeah, well, let's talk to you in 20 years and see what you say about that. Right? But do I really believe the Father loves me? And do I really believe, do we really believe as children of God that God is out for our good? Because I know when I tell my daughter that she can't have her 25th candy bar, in a half an hour. And I say, no, you're done. When I, t- just today, I'm out in the hall and I'm drinking water. She's like, I can't drink. I said, no, I'm sick. <laughs> I'm crying against the wall. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to help you. You're going to get sick. She doesn't understand that, right? And how much infinitely greater is the difference between our Father and us? Where we're crying on the wall because we haven't gotten something when he is actually doing that which is most loving to protect us. Do we really believe that? Before anything happens in our life, do we believe that? Enter Moses' complaint here in Exodus chapter 6. And Moses' complaint, I think, is is maybe some of the most honest human interaction we have with God in the Bible. I love it, because it's very real to me. And the conversation, uh, he's had a couple conversations. God tells him a lot of stuff, but he has interactions with God basically in two places so far. Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. And during that time, God says, I want you to go. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going I'm to free them from Pharaoh, and I'm going to send you. And he's like, whoa, what are you talking about sending me? That's all good stuff, but don't send me. And he fills the conversation with excuses and complaints and even accusations. And then Moses goes. God's patient with him. He kind of rebukes him a little bit. But he's patient with him and he sends him off to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he does exactly what God told him to do. And at first it goes great and then it goes really bad. And it gets a lot worse. And that results in Moses going, turning to God and saying, what is going on? What is going on? I did what you said. And something has happened that I don't like. Because the ironic thing is God said it would happen that way. And maybe that would help us get through some more hard stuff if God just said, well, this is the way it's going to be. Well, he kind of did. He said, your life is going to be like Jesus. He said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. By the way, they killed me. I mean, it's kind of obvious. But he didn't like it. And so he turns to complain to God. And God responds to him, not with, you skeptic. 
devil, how dare you doubt me and question me? No, he just responds to him. It says, I am God. And let me tell you what I'm going to do as you're focusing on all the things that you think you have to do or are going to do. And he basically, in this passage, preaches him a beautiful gospel. And what he talks about here is simply the same thing. It all points towards Jesus. We're like, what's the Old Testament? I think I just, you know, a lot of people don't like the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus. And hopefully I'll flesh that out for you today. Let's look at Exodus chapter 6. Actually, I'm going to start back in 5, verse 23, so you can get the context of what's going on. We'll try to break it down for you. Exodus 5, uh, 22 is where Moses turns to the Lord right after the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the Israelites have said, you've made a stink and smell before Pharaoh. You must have done something wrong. May God judge you. So they still believe in God. They think Moses messed up. So Moses is not very popular again. And... Moses turns, and it's interesting, it's not clear whether he turns like right there, like they're like, we like you, you made a stink. And he's like, Lord, what's going on? Which would be really bad if he did. You think about, I have to think about this, I've got six eyes now, my wife also, but six little eyes watching me all the time. And life, you know, you think life is like always pleasant in the Ford home. It's not. Tough things happen. Life happens. Crappy thing happens, Okay. I don't, I, I could lay a list out for you too. Everyone's got them. But the question is not when, you know, the, the crappy things happen or don't. The question is when they do, what do my kids see? What do they see? Do they see me turning to God? Do they see me going in the closet like, well, Jesus will take care of us, kids. I mean, what do they see? What do they see? Do they see me in the midst going, Lord, this is terrible, but I trust you. Do they see me crying out with this, Lord, how dare you? Or is it like, oh, Lord, why? Because those are very different. What do they see? It's a question all mothers and fathers should ask. But let's look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you ever sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Accusation. 6.1 says, But the Lord, but, the great but, but the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Ooh, that's got to feel good, God saying that, huh? Well, let me show you what I'm going to do to him. Don't worry about it. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of the broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and, Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now I recognize that as I speak today, many of us, maybe a lot of us, maybe all of us, are just like the Israelites where someone comes and tells us the truth and we have broken spirits and it's hard to hear it. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to tell you the exact same thing that Moses has told you. Because the responsibility for the change of your heart is not based on me persuading you to believe this. So I'm going to trust the Spirit will work in that. But Moses comes, complains, and God says very clearly, Now watch. Moses said, look, you haven't delivered your people at all. There's nothing here. You should have acted now. And God comes in and says, no, we don't work according to your nows, Moses. We work according to mine. We have a God who makes promises. We have a God who makes good on those promises. And we have a God who is, makes good on his promises in his perfect timing. The difficult thing about that is that God, A, is never late, ever. He is never late on his promise. But he's also never early. That's the hard part. He's never early. And we are not a very patient people. And it's hard for us to trust when he doesn't give us the hows or the nows. And in Acts 1, when the disciples had uh, spent about 40 some odd days with Jesus, he had resurrected from the dead and he was about to ascend to heaven. They're like, all right, is this it? I mean, you're taking us on this mountain here. It looks like you're going to fly away. What's going on? Are you going to restore Israel now? And he says, yours is not the time or the place to know when things should happen. But God in his own authority does that and knows that. As difficult as God doesn't tell us when, but he does make promises. And our focus is not to say, God, you should make your promise fulfilled in this way right here. That's when complaints come in because we're dependent upon the nows and the hows and not on the promise itself. But he says, now watch, I'm coming. And then he gives Moses a little bit of a history lesson. He said, I am the God who appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And I am the God who made a covenant. I made a promise. A promise based off of me. It was my promise, my covenant, not based on anything you were going to do. And I have remembered my promise. I have not forgotten. He promised Abraham a couple things. He came to him, and specifically in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17, he came and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. At the time he gave to him, came to him, he made him a promise that he didn't fulfill till a long time later. And he comes, and Abraham's already old. His wife is old. They're both old. And although old people do things that they do to make babies, Abraham was not thinking it was going to happen, right? And so he made this promise, and it looked totally unlikely. No way it's going to happen. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Are you kidding me? I only, got, I only have one kid. And you're going to make me a nation? He says, I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to give you a big chunk of land called Canaan. And he made these promises. And he said in Genesis 15, to be specific, your people are going to spend 400 years in slavery. But when that time ends... I will come. And so it's not that God has forgotten when he says, I remember my covenant. Like, boom, shoot. 
I totally forgot. I am sorry. I didn't know you were suffering. No, he knew. He said it was going to happen. But he says, when the suffering comes to the end that I have declared, then I will come forth. And then he basically says, Moses, get out of the way for a second. And watch what I do. Because Pharaoh is going to be so convinced that I am God. He is not only going to say, okay, well, we'll let him go. He's going to be pushing you out with a strong hand. And he's going to give you some serious parting gifts to go with you. And that's what happens. They plunder the Egyptians. Imagine an Israelite going to his neighbor, hmm, I'd like this and this and this and this. Take it. Just take it all and get out. And so not only do they leave free, but they leave rich and blessed. All because of what God says he's going to do. And God makes it quite plain as he gives him an explanation. He says, I appeared as God Almighty, which is the term El Shaddai which talks about God's sufficiency. Shaddai is, is a term that's used to, um, I believe the term means breast, the idea of nourishment, the idea of provision. Says, I appear to them as God Almighty. I made a promise of provision. I made a promise that I'm going to give you all these things. But I never revealed my name to them. But now, I'm going to start telling you who I am. And I'm going to reveal myself in a powerful way as a God who not only speaks, but a God who acts. See, the problem with us as a people is that we're made in the image of God, but we do a heck of a lot of talking and not much acting. And God comes and says, I'm a God who speaks and I'm a God who acts. Get out of the way. You're not going to believe what happens when you see what I do. And God is so much about himself in this. This is such a God-centric message. He says, I will, in the first eight verses, he says it, I believe, see, 18 times he uses the word I. And then the same verse, he uses the word my five times. So, 23 times in this eight-verse section here, God is basically saying the exact same thing, which is, this is all about what I'm going to do. He does it all. He controls it all. He'll get the credit for all and the glory for all. There's nothing that we do, because there's nothing, to be honest, that we really deserve. And God is not obligated to give us anything But the beauty of the gospel is that he gives us everything that we don't have to earn. And so, we have in here the gospel laid out in a very clear way. We'll call it the gospel according to Exodus. And the gospel, we talk about the gospel a lot. And the gospel is basically the news of what God has done to bring us back to him. And the news that he proclaims in Exodus is simply a shadow of how it's fully fulfilled with the news that he declares in Jesus Christ. And as you break down these seven I wills, I will do this, I will do that, he has done that in Jesus Christ. And the question is not, has he done it? The question is, are we going to believe it in such a way where we actually live it out? Or are we going to spend our time complaining? And so he goes through seven I wills, and I'll go through them as quickly as I can. First one he says is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Now, we're going to look at these two ways. We've got Exodus, because literally this happens, and it is both figurative and, and, and symbolic, but it actually happens in Christ. And so this is all a picture of Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and all these things happen in Jesus, a belief in Jesus, and none of these things happen if you don't believe in Jesus. In fact, if you do not believe in Jesus, you are the Egyptians who are going to get their tails kicked and wrath poured out on them. 
So those are the two choices you have. Okay? And so he first thing he says is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And think about the life of this slave. They get up every morning. The husband, the wife, the single guy, the single gal, the kids, they get up and their lives are to work tirelessly. And we've already seen the context where they have to work. They work in such a way where they're asked to complete a task that they can never complete. They cannot work harder to complete. It's impossible. It's been set up in such an impossible way. So when they can't meet the task, they get beaten. Like, well, that's not fair. That's probably the one time you could say that. Yes, it's not fair. They're getting pounded on for something they have no control over in many ways. And yet, they get up day after day, tirelessly. Imagine a life with, devoid of any meaning or purpose. Every day is hard. Every day is a struggle. Every day is just, I'm getting up to get beaten, to work for someone that I don't care about, at an activity that I don't care about, with no meaning, no purpose whatsoever, and no joy. And God says, I'm going to come and lift that burden off of you, that impossible burden. And in Jesus, He did it fully. In Jesus, He comes and He says, I know you are burdened. And what are we burdened are? Well, we're burdened with a lot of things. We come, everyone comes to the table with a bunch of baggage. Some of us come with scars. Some of us come with scars from the sins that people have committed against us and beat the snot out of us. Some of us come with a baggage that, of our own sin that we have piled on, that we didn't necessarily want to be there, but because we're sinners, we just added on to our lives. And so we have these burdens. We have shame like they had in the Garden of Eden to see this sin. They're filled with shame. And we go around life burdened with all this stuff trying to get through where life becomes, in many ways, meaningless. I am just trying to get through so I can go to bed, so I can get up to get through to go to bed again. And Jesus comes and says, no, there's more to this life. I'm going to give you meaning and purpose. And it's to begin with me lifting all of that shame, lifting all of that burden that you have, the hardship. But how does he do that? He goes to the cross and he gets shamed and beaten and burdened unnecessarily, not his fault, not his responsibility, but takes it all so we don't have to. And that's how he lifts the burden. And so you don't need to live in shame. You don't need to live in that guilt. Because Jesus says, look, come to me. What does he say in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not because the burden is still there, or it's because he's removed it and he carries it himself. I will release the burden. The second thing he says is, I will deliver you. God seeks the Egyptian, I mean the Israelites. I will deliver you from slavery. So not only do we have a God who removes our shame, a God who wants life for us to be restful and enjoyable, okay, in a very spiritual sense, not just life of comfort, restful in Him. We have a God who frees us. And in Exodus, it's very true. We have to remember, this is hard, I think, some of us to think about, but there was nothing, nothing, nothing the Israelites could do to free themselves. There was nothing. They were slaves. 
They were enslaved to a master who was oppressive, controlling, who could kill them at a word. There was nothing they could do to free themselves. They weren't like a bunch of ants who gathered together, rebel, and, and be able to break out. They were going to be destroyed. There was nothing they could do. And in the same way, as Christians, as people or non-Christians, we are mastered by sin. Sin is our oppressor. And I'll tell you right now, there's nothing you can do to remove that master. There's nothing. You can't beat that master off. M- many people try to like manage the master. Okay? I'm just going like, to try to deal with it and do good things here and they'll go away. It's not going to. What it takes is deliverance. What it takes is you giving it to Jesus so he can take it because you're not able to destroy your own master. That's why when God comes into Egypt, he doesn't say, hey, here's what I'll do for you if you let him go. If you let these people go, let me just negotiate a little bit. No, he comes in and goes, bam, here's the negotiations. I'm going to kill you and crush you and you're going to let the people go. But no, no negotiations. That's what he does. Because sin and our oppressor has to be destroyed by someone, and you and I are not powerful to do it. But we try. We like, try to get all these external things. Give me the counselor. Give me the book. Give me the pill. Something will fix it. Nothing will, because the brokenness is in your heart. The mastery is in your heart. And until you give that heart to Jesus, nothing's going to happen, and you will be mastered. And so Jesus comes and says, I'll take it. And he even says, I'm going to take you out of this kingdom. And in Colossians 1.13, he says, Because of the cross, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice it doesn't say, well, you could just walk out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. No, it says, he transfers us. He does it. He takes us out of the dominion of darkness and he puts us in his kingdom. That's deliverance that I have no control over. That's the gospel. Third thing he says is, I will redeem you with great judgment. First time the word redeem shows up, in the Old Testament. And the word redeem is, has multiple meanings on it, but the idea of, the kind of core of it is the idea of purchasing something back that has been lost by the payment of a ransom. And you see this in, um, in Leviticus and a couple other passages that kind of explain the idea of redemption. If, if someone basically goes into debt and they cannot pay it, um, a brother gets in trouble, those types of things. They have a redeemer that comes and pays and pays the ransom and gets them out of debt. And the debt isn't just like forgotten. The debt has to be satisfied. It has to be satisfied. And so God, in this case, under Exodus, under this guy, he comes in and he crushes this king. He says, I'm going to redeem you with great acts of judgment. And he pours out his wrath on this kingdom. And he protects his people. The last uh, miracle, if you will, the last sign is the Passover lamb. They take the lamb, they slaughter the lamb, they put the blood on their door, and the angel of death comes around and like, hmm, blood. And he keeps going and kills all the firstborn. It isn't covered by the blood. doesn't take a rocket scientist to see how that points to Jesus. But let's see what that tells us about our God. Okay? We have a God that removes our shame. We have a God that wants to, and a Father that wants to remove our shame, and a Father that wants to free us. Now we have a Father that is right and merciful. And that's important. Because if He just forgets sin, I'm just going to forgive it all, where's the justice there? And we all want justice. We all want the baddest person you think of. Okay, let's see, a child, muster, murderer, whatever. Put whatever that is in there. We all want them punished. 
And if you go, well, let's just forgive and forget. It doesn't feel right. Whoa, 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 whoa. It doesn't feel right to God. Because God is just. But how can God be just and be merciful? How can He, you know, wipe us out and kill people like He should do, and yet still show mercy to dead people? How does that work? It works in Christ. Because He says, I will redeem you. How? I will be just, and I will pour out my wrath on Exodus, and on Exodus, on the Egyptians, and in Jesus, I will pour out my wrath on Him. So that's what God does. He doesn't just forget sin. He pours out His wrath, everything, all the judgments you see in Exodus, He pours it out on Jesus for us. Where we should be receiving it. And He takes it Himself. And then He gives us Jesus. So therefore He can be just, our Father can be right, and He can also be merciful and loving. And it's no more clearly seen than what He did to His own Son for our sake. Because he had to? No. No. He didn't have to make a covenant. He didn't have to make a promise. But because of his nature, he made good on the promise because it's dependent upon him and not us. Then he says, I will take you. Not only that, not only will I free you, remove your shame, not only will I be the right God for you, the Father who is right and the Father who is loving, but I'll also adopt you. In, in Exodus, he says, I will take you to be my people. And God doesn't simply freeze people and say, all right, have fun. Enjoy yourself. Now that you're free, live as free people. Okay? Well, we know what happens when that happens. He takes his people and he frees them and he gathers them together to be a nation that represent him and that worship him. That represent him to the world of what a kingdom of God looks like and is supposed to look like. God gives them, in many ways, a home, not a house, that comes later, a home and an identity of how things are supposed to be lived out. This is the way God's people live. This is the way those who love Jesus live. And in Jesus, he does the same thing for us. He doesn't just free us as individuals. He frees us and delivers us into a church. It says Jesus died in Ephesians 5 for his bride, the church. And in many ways, we... The hostility between man and God through Jesus and through the cross is destroyed, but it also destroys hostility between us. And we enter into a relationship with Him that really becomes, we enter into a relationship with each other. And we become a body. We become a place with an identity. And it's a spiritual identity. It's not just a house. It's not just a place. It's the body of Christ that we become part of. We're adopted into a family. We're not left as orphans. We're not left as orphans. Ephesians 2 I think says it perfectly, says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the prophets, I'm sorry, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. We have a home most people come to this church, to be honest with you, the new people. Everyone I meet, one of the first things to say is, I'm lonely. I'm lonely. I have no one. And if you are a believer in Christ, you are not left as an orphan. You are adopted into a spiritual body with fellow citizens who are all part of the same family. It's supposed to be a family. And everyone wants family. Everyone wants family with a father who is loving. 
And that's when he goes in and says, I'll be your God. He adopted us into a family, and he adopted us into a place where we have a genuine father. Now, many of us, let's be honest, we've got some jacked up dads. Okay? We've got messed up dads. And so when you see, oh, God is my father, you think, no thanks. That's not what my ideal father is. And for all the things you dislike about your dad, not to beat up on dads, but you know what? They've been messed up a lot. But for everything that you don't like about your dad, in that is something that you have an idea of what a dad is supposed to do. And that is God. That is God your father. And he comes and he says, look, I'm going to adopt you my family and I'm going to be a father who loves you. Not because you're lovable, not because you deserve it, but because I'm a father who loves. And I think that's best seen with your own children because there is nothing my children can do for me to stop loving them. I never really understood that until I had kids. I can understand with my bride a little bit. I mean, there's a sense of it there. But your father comes. I mean, my son will do something, and I'll go, man, that was really dumb. Or they'll say something to me and complain, and I'm thinking, oh, you know what I really want to do right now? Whatever, but filtered over all of that is such a deep love for them. And you look at, it almost gets me choked up, but I won't cry because I don't have tear ducts. But my daughter, my daughter, it's so, it's such a different relationship. And every time I look at her and I see her walk and, and I just see her play, I think there's no one, there is no guy in this world that can love you as much as I do. No way. And I just think, I'm, she's never going to get married. <laughs> I'm seriously, I, I think that. And to think of her marrying some guy like, oh, well, she married. There is no guy good enough. There's none. And he doesn't exist. And that's the kind of love you think about a father has for his child. That is the kind of love that God has for each of us. And we don't trust him. How much more can he prove that by what he does through his son? But what he gives up to be our God. To say, I want to be your father. And I will make a way for that to happen. We have to know, in many ways, that our father wants what's best for us if he's willing to pour out his wrath on his son to make it happen. And lastly, he says two things. I'll bring you into the land, and I'll give it to you as possession. I'll bring you into the land... Again, another Iowa. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you. He's going to release them, put them in his family, and then he's going to lead them. He doesn't just say, good luck in the wilderness. I hope you make it. The long ways. In Exodus, when he releases them, they are led during the day by a cloud and by night by a pillar of fire. He is always there present. Always lead them. Eventually, as you look through biblical history, it comes to be uh, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence comes to dwell. Right? Leading Israel. Always lead him out. There's God. He's always before us. We know what to do because he's directing us. And eventually it comes to Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. God is with us. And he comes, and when he dies and resurrects, his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. The curtain is torn. The presence is no longer in the temple, but now resides in our hearts and our souls. And so he doesn't leave us in this wilderness to be by ourselves. He leads us continuing into the land until we are with Him in complete and perfect rest in heaven. He is with us always. He tells His disciples, I will be with you always. 
I will teach you and remind you what you need to know. I will give you the words that you need to know. He is always there. And how often do we access that? Very rarely. We're really good at shoving our fists in the mouth of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know if we're very good at listening to Him. I will bring you into the land. Not, hey, go get that land. I will bring you. I will lead you. I will get through whatever wilderness you in. I am with you. I am never gone. I am there. Doesn't matter how difficult things, how impossible, I am there. I will bring you. I am going to pr- take you all the way to the end. The Bible says, God is committed to finishing the work that Christ began in you. He's committed to it. And he says, when you get there, I'm going to give you a possession. I'm giving you this land as a possession. And I think the beauty of that, in Exodus, they give him the land. Looks at the situation like, oh my gosh, that's yours. Um, so they go in, they're like, yeah, this is ours. Get out of the way. Well, you got this Jericho here, got this. And so they kind of step back and they go, okay, God, take care. <laughs> he wipes it all out. We're so, so much about wanting to lead ahead of Jesus and be in charge and like, I'll battle for you. He's like, let's just get behind him and let him do the battle. And he's like way better at it. And he gives us the land. And the beauty of this, it's a picture, I think, of salvation. As Exodus, he gives him the land. God gives us salvation. We didn't earn the land. We didn't earn our salvation. We did not even achieve. He just gives it to us. And therefore, the land cannot be taken away. Catch that? It cannot be taken away. Sometimes we walk through life so much like, oh, I don't want to be rejected by God. Oh my gosh. Look, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you're saved. You are saved. And therefore, He has given you an inheritance that is a guarantee and cannot be taken away. So don't talk about, I'm afraid I'm going to lose Jesus. Jesus doesn't lose anybody. That's where the focus is. Since He's the one that gave it to you, He's the one that holds on to it. You can't even rip it from Him if you wanted to. He says, no one can snatch anyone from my hand. And so He does it. So we have these seven I wills from Jesus, from God. The gospel according to Exodus. And here's what happens to close us out. All too often it seems that people come to accept Jesus as Savior, but they don't ever get to the part where Jesus is Lord. They want fire insurance, but they don't actually want to have God have dominion over all aspects of their life. Maybe some of them, but there's a lot they don't. And I say this to to my own um, condemnation as well. And... We pray the prayer. I don't know about you. You know, people pray the prayer. I prayed the prayer like 49 times, I think. Okay, Every time the pastor like, who wants to pray? Oh, I think I'm not saved. I don't know. You pray again, you know, and you can, you know, and then when someone isn't living their life, they go, well, I think they prayed the prayer one day. There's a big difference between praying the prayer and someone having a trans- transformed heart and letting the Lord be Lord of their life. But regardless, we believe, and then we believe, and life just doesn't go the way we planned doesn't work out the way we want, and we dislike the way God does things. So what happens is we complain. And we complain just like our children do. And we start off by saying, I didn't like this. It's not fair. I want a new home. I want new rules. I don't like the way you govern things. You see people do it all the time. God bless you. There's a girl that came to our church many moons ago. Thought she came to know Jesus. Not really sure at this point, but not my place to call. And she decided, actually she came to know Jesus, 
that after a little time of probably me saying things she'd like to hear and some other things, she wanted to check out her spiritual options. That was her quote. Spiritual options? Guess what, Sister Sue? There's only one option, and it's Jesus. But we all go through that, and you see everyone doing that, checking out their spiritual options. I don't like these rules. I don't like what the Bible teaches. I don't like how God governs things. I think I'll choose this house over here. I want this family. I don't like that. I want this family. I'm not talking about church hopping. I'm talking about different faiths, different different ways of viewing the world. There's lots of options. There's only one that's true, and that is a biblical worldview. And eventually, when we start sorting out the different options we want, we complain, and it leads to, I want to be God. I think I can do a better job than Dad is doing at being Dad. That's the core of it. And at the core of all of it, I think, is the idea of you don't believe God is really good or loving or that he knows what he's doing. That's what Satan thought. If you look real quick to Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14 is uh, is suggested as the the place where, um, a description of where Satan fell from heaven. And the truth behind why we complain is that, like I said, it's the same reason that children complain. We don't really believe that God knows what he's doing. And so we rebel, disobey. And God here has given his his seven I wills. And really, Satan had his five I wills. And they're Isaiah 14. And it says this in verse 13. Speaking about what's in Satan's heart. said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. And so at the core of our complaints to God, our dissatisfaction with God, our rebellion to God, is the fact that I want to rule, I will conquer, I will judge, I will be God. It's the same thing Adam and Eve fell for, the same desire that they exhibited in the Garden of Eden. And we say, I want to rule, which in turn is basically... I am going to be the one to call the shots. I am not dependent upon anyone. I am the king. I can do what I want, when I want. I know the right way. I don't need you, God. I don't like the way you run things. We go into, I can conquer. We start thinking we're way more powerful than we are. I'm not a creation. I could be creator. I could do all kinds of things. I can fix myself. You're not that strong. Neither am I. But I think the worst one is, we think, I will be judge. And what we do is we decide what is right, what is wrong, based off what we like and what we want. And so we judge not only ourselves, but other people, until eventually we judge God. And we say, God, because any complaint, think about that. Any time we go, well, this is the way things should have went, we're basically saying, God, you don't know what the snarf you're doing. I do. I'm right. Which ultimately ends with, we want to be God. And at the core of our beliefs, all of us must ask ourselves, do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that your Father is good? That your Father is just? Do you really believe that your Father is loving? Do you really believe that your Father is powerful? 
Do you really believe your father is angry at times and wrathful? Do you believe your God is faithful? Do you believe he's in control in such a way that he wants the best for you? God says, I am the Lord, and he will listen to our complaints by his gracious patience. But he'll hear our pride coming through. And that is what we celebrate every Sunday. Because what he does with that part of us, the prideful part of us, is he nails it to the cross and crucifies it and kills it. We might live like Jesus in his spirit, submitting to God, who is the perfect father, who is the father that does lift our burdens. But it doesn't look like it. He does. Father who delivers us and promises to deliver us. The Father who promises to redeem us, to remove all the shame and the guilt. The Father who promises to be our God, to be the Father we didn't have. To bring us into a family that's loving, as broken as it is, it's loving. And to be and guarantee that you will be with Him in the end. That's the Father we have. And when we recognize and focus on the I wills of God and the what I have done's of God and not what I can do or what I should do or how I'll respond, our complaints turn into praises because we're focusing on who God is and not who we are. That's the beauty and magnificence of God. And I pray, I pray, I pray that we will for a moment believe that we do have a father like that. Because if, you, if you're complaining, if you dislike something right now, it's okay to complain. He doesn't mind that. But don't get to the point where you believe that the father is not good, the father is not loving, because he is. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled by your greatness and your beauty and your magnificence. Lord, the fact that you see the whole picture and we don't. I pray, Lord, that you will increase all of our faith to not focus on what we will do, Lord, but what you have said we'll do. Father, I pray you will turn our complaints into praises as we focus and remember the Father that we have. The Father who loves us so much he gave his Son. Father who cares for us so much He wants to relieve the burden and free us from the shame. The Father who, though we deserve nothing, has given us everything. Help us trust You, Lord. Help us to trust You that we might be with our Father again. In Your Son's blood we pray. Amen.